Hi, I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday. I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. And I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the 24th episode of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We are hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. And today we're going to continue our ongoing dialogue with our listeners, which I have to say is one of my uh, favorite pa- part of this podcast. And since totally. we started yeah. it, it's been just really, really interesting. And so we, we're going to address a couple of emails that uh, came our way. And the first one is from Todd Davis, who's in uh, Stanford, California, you know, as in the university. So that's Palo Alto, I Palo think? Alto. But you know, the weird thing is, is his, his email Stanford? said Stanford. Stanford Comma C A. Oh, well, so, so maybe, maybe he's there's not a, a mailbox on, on, I guess. on, you know, on mail, a post office. Yeah, sorry. Uh, anyway, so he sent us some questions uh, relating to theater and video, and not the use of video in theater, but rather watching theater on video. And but before we get to his actual questions, um, I, I'd like to mention some studies that Todd, uh, who's an experimental psychologist by training. Um, brought up, but we had a brief email exchange, and he kind of brought them up, and and they're really I found them fa- fascinating. So two of these studies compared the effects on school children of taking a field trip to see live theater versus reading or seeing movies of the same plays. So one of these studies from 2015, so they're res- recent too, has and I'm I'm going to quote Todd here. Uh, this study has a, an eye-popping result that students show a significant benefit in reading other people's emotions, even when the test is, on average, 47 days after the performance. Uh, and then uh, he says that there's a 2018 paper that reports um, a study in which two groups of kids were taken on field trips and put in rooms where they sat together and watched either a play in a theater or a movie of the same play in a ballroom. And despite the relative similarities in the two experiences, they still found very significant benefits of the in-person performance rather than the movie. So Todd points out that, of course, adults uh, might react differently. Um, And he also says that there are similar studies showing that kids get more out of reading paper books than they do out of reading them on a screen. Uh, And he thinks the interpretation there is partly that different media trigger different levels of serious attention because of the habits we develop with them. And actually, there was also a New York Times article recently about how people who listen to audiobooks and people who read the same books don't experience them the same way. And people who read them on paper uh, retain more than people who listen to the audiobooks. This research is really important. Uh, When I was on the National Council on the Arts, we used to see a lot of, of research purporting to show the utility of art, uh, Mozart effect kind of studies, most of which were, of course, they, they couldn't be replicated. They just, they didn't come out. And I think one should be suspicious in any case of, of trying to prove that art has utility beyond what it does for us, that it gives us pleasure. It makes us happier. This is a different kind of research, serious research that shows that art a particular kind of art, a particular way of experiencing art, enhances our ability to perceive the feelings of other people. This I find hugely interesting, especially since it points to this significant difference between live theater and watching theater or theater-like presentations in other media. I mean, I, oh, so yeah. I, I was just going to say I, I'd like to see the the actual report because when it says that that there's a significant benefit in reading other people's emotions, I want to know, you know. 
is it correctly reading other people's emotions or is it like a critic just taking a guess at other people's well, emotions? Well, no, it's, it's a good point because I, I recently was at a show that started off very promisingly or kind of well, and then it completely lost the plot. And I felt, and this is completely subjective, but I felt that the audience was just, the energy was sucked out of the room. Mm. In the middle, it's just... Like the audience was just not there, and it's really hard to pinpoint. But like I really could feel it. I, I guess the I guess the point would be that in in in, in making children having children sit for a concerted amount of time, uh, and actually having to focus on another person as opposed to a screen or a, you know to actually sit quietly and observe that that alone would enhance one's um, uh, ability to respond to uh, the, the emotions of a, of a person. Uh, yeah. So, all right. So, so anyway, so with this in mm -hmm. mind, uh, we're going to try to address Todd's questions to us. Yeah. And his first question is, have you attended a National Theater Live event? And just for the audience out there that doesn't know what that means is National Theater has a program, ongoing program, in which they uh, film uh, uh, plays uh, and musicals in uh, the UK, and they are then uh, the, the, the films or the videos or whatever they are are played in, uh, at performances in usually in theaters in the United States, also movie theaters, but also in um, theater venues. Mm -hmm. So have you guys uh, attended a national the I, theater? I have not. I have have not. you, Terry? No, but there's a reason. Most of the national theater live shows that have interested me were pretty clearly headed for Broadway, and it was important to me that I not see them on video before they got here. I really feel like I feel like, feel like I need to see those shows fresh, and so I haven't seen any of them. I have seen a National Theater Live event, <laughs> unlike the two of you. I have, I cover m obviously much more of the, the form, uh, than oh, well. you do. <laughs> well, but um, I and I I don't know if his question was just a yes or no question, but I will say that uh, uh, yeah, I attended a packed house of uh, uh, Martin McDonough's Hangmen uh, uh, in, in mm. on a cold winter night. So. So what, the answer what, what is yes. What was it like? Todd. Because then I assume you saw it when it played here. Right. You, so you saw it on video before you saw it in the theater. All right. Now here's a confession. No, I didn't see it here because oh. I thought I had seen it. Uh, <laughs> ah. And uh, 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 what was it like? It. You know, I don't find. You know, I'm not that accustomed to seeing plays on film. Uh, you know, plays uh, in that kind of format, and it, I found it. Uh, I found it two-dimensional, and as a result, it didn't feel it didn't feel complete. And when I even sort of when Todd talked about you know this idea of reading other people's emotions, I felt the distance, and it didn't it felt like a movie, not like a play to me. How big was the space in which you saw it? Was it a movie theater? It was Skirball. It was at um, you know it was at NYU, so it was a big. It was a you know it was the size of an off Broadway of a big off Broadway theater. I'd say probably six hundred seats, maybe. 500 something like that um, and the uh, uh, it, it, it engaged me I mean I you know it was it, the camera work was impressive I mean they they work all the way around I mean they try and give it much more uh, depth than they they used to when you saw those really stodgy uh, you know uh, films on uh, th plays on film yeah but it's it, you know it didn't make me want to go back how's that it didn't make me want to do it again actually I 
the, the second question kind of like uh, is similar. Like the second question is, have you compared watching PBS great performances of plays you have seen live with the in-person experience? Now, um, yes, actually, because uh, I've watched quite a few plays uh, on great performances, but also on Broadway HD, the, you know, the streaming um, mm -hmm. channel. And one where I thought that it really, the, the live capture actually really worked was for Steven Levinson's uh, If I Forget, hmm. which was at Dolores Pels, it was uh, the roundabouts of Broadway House. And so I saw it live first, and then I was writing an article about streaming, so I thought, like, oh, I'm gonna check out like the first 10 minutes. I ended up watching the whole thing all hmm. over again. Um, I thought that worked really well because the use of the close-ups and the different angles on that was really a good complement. Right. Yeah, for intimate the play. plays, I think for intimate pieces, it, it works pretty well. I mm -hmm. saw uh, the uh, Richard Nelson, at one of the Apple plays, I think it was, or one of the Gabriel plays. I can't remember which one it was. Because uh, they're all completely interchangeable. Is that <laughs> We're not going there. Uh, but I, and I thought that worked because the close, because it is actually a play in close up. And that, you know, I could see something like the Vanya at, uh, that we right, saw yeah. at uh, uh, Hunter College working that way too. But I do think the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about this issue is that, you know, my, I saw Julius Caesar at the Bridge Theater in London in person. My wife watched it when, uh, when it was done um, at, in the uh, National Theater version live. And she didn't quite get what, as much as I did, what was the, the concept. Mm. And I think the interesting idea is as theater becomes more immersive, and that was an immersive production, you know, the theater pushes you away, <laughs> the, the film version pushes you away. So I, I you know, just as the theater seems to be catching up with the technology and being able to do better um, theater on film, theater is marching in a different direction and is saying, you know, you've got to be here to feel it. So I'm yeah. not sure that the that we're ever going to really be in sync between film and theater in terms of... That's I, a really good point. Um, do, 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 do you guys think, I mean, because we have like uh, amazing access and it's we, we're very lucky and privileged that way, but do you think those video captures and broadcast, is it, is it okay if basically that's the only way you can see something? I'm going to well, say yes. Well, that's kind of what I want to engage with. I mean, I'm more, I have looked at a number of great performances, mm. uh, broadcasts, mostly musicals and operas, but I'm more likely to have looked at the PBS versions of older shows that I did not see in the theater. Mm -hmm. The last time I did that was when John Mahoney died. Uh, I screened the mm. 1987 TV version of the, you know, he was in the original Broadway production of The House of Blue Leaves, and I screened mm. it before writing about him. I came away from it feeling that I'd gotten a pretty clear sense of how he and the other actors looked and sounded on stage. And I also watched the PBS version of the 2017 Broadway revival of Present Laughter. That was mainly out of curiosity, though, because I happened to be in the theater on the night that that performance was taped. And I was curious to make a comparison. But then, as you guys were saying, we're not civilians. Right. You know, I've, I've seen a couple of thousand plays in the theater. Uh, I've seen more than one staging of the House of Blue Leaves. I've seen more than one archival video of shows of my own. And the, the point is that we understand the difference mm. between how stage acting lands in the theater and how it lands when you view it in the living room or in a movie theater, which is a totally different environment. It almost always feels at least somewhat exaggerated because of the need to project in a theater. And I don't know how a person who doesn't go to the theater very often 
would be likely to respond to that kind of exaggeration. Mm. Maybe that has something to do with the results of the studies that Todd is talking about. Mm. On the other hand, I also think that some of the Metropolitan Opera's simulcasts actually come off better in a movie theater than in a huge auditorium like the Met, where intimacy is impossible beyond the Mm. first Mm -mm. 15 Mm -hmm. or 20 rows. Yeah. There's actually, I would also say that there's one great thing (laughs) about uh, the, the, the video experience is sometimes, especially for musicals, you know when you're at a show and you see a, a great number and my thought is often like oh my god i wish i could see this i wish i could rewind mm. i wish i could see this number again and again and again like right now and yes when you're in front of uh, your tv and you have your remote you can do that and i i have done it well, and and i guess i should check my critical privilege and and <laughs> say that you know yes if you're in palo alto and you want to see something that is only being done in new york uh, you're going to, of course, this is right, going to be the next best thing. Right. And I certainly encourage people to do that because it is close to the experience. It's not the experience, but it's close to right. the experience. Right. Now, here's another question from Todd. Would you feel comfortable writing a review based on a video presented either in a cinema or on a home screen? And would you be okay with awards being voted on by people who had only seen the performance on video. Absolutely not. No. For me. No. It's no, theater. No I mean, you know, yeah. it's not, uh, you know, we're now in another medium. And, the, right. and and we're now, your eye is forced, regardless of how well it's uh, been directed and edited, your eye is still forced to that editor's uh, uh, perspective. It is no longer you taking in what you want. I mean, if you're, if you uh, as a theater goer have a, you know, want to watch everybody except the person speaking because you want to get the ambi, if you're, you know, it, or, or you're a reviewer and trying to get a sense of what's going on in terms of in reaction to what's happening, and that's what how you're evaluating performance. Uh, you're forced to be told by the editor, no, you can't look at that right now because this is what I'm, I'm telling you to look at. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it's, it's, it's not a replacement. Yeah, for, no, for, I, it isn't in any way for evaluating uh, the uh, theatrical experience. Terry yeah. and Elizabeth, do you agree? Right. Or yeah, oh, well, no, I com- go on, go on, Elizabeth. No, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, I don't really have much else to add to that. I mean, otherwise we would be TV critics or film critics. I mean, that's right. Yeah, There's a reason we don't review movies. That said, the the part about uh, giving awards based, like I've been wondering if sometimes. Because you know that's come up with 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 the Tonys, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, because they they're trying to make sure that people have seen everything, and I've, I really you know so they vote only in categories. Technically speaking, you can only vote in a category if you, where you've seen all the nominees, and I kind of wonder if the voters who don't live here really do see all of that. And or I the wonder, ones who live here. Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. So I, I'm wondering about that, but I think that will be opening a whole can of worms to supply, quote unquote, screeners. I mean, that's just not possible. No. Well, generally speaking, I agree with both of you, uh, unless what it is that I'm writing is a review of the video presentation. Right. But, yeah, yeah, but not one in which the video is being used as a substitute for seeing the show in the theater. The two experiences are. They're just too different for a critic to approach them interchangeably. Now, now, yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, video is far, far better than nothing. And if we'd had these kinds of things when I was young, 
it would have had, I'm sure, a profound effect on, on my experience of theater. But th there's no getting around the fact that it's just simply not the same as seeing a show in person. And for what we do, for our responsibility as critics, our physical presence, I think, is absolutely necessary. I think it's useful as a refresher, as as you were indicating, mm -hmm. uh, Elizabeth, that if you want to see something again, uh, that it's really helpful. For example, uh, it, it, when you're on the Pulitzer jury, which I've done several times, the uh, there are shows that are just so visual that the script on which, which is really what is, the prize is supposed to be for, is really inadequate to understanding the show, and people will uh, submit videos of oh, performance oh. in certain cases because they are so visual yeah, and the I, language really is visual and that helps surely that's a fundamental problem with the drama Pulitzer that yes uh, I mean if a show lives in performance right that's what it is it doesn't yes, live exactly. on the page and totally right yeah, I, I, I just don't see how we can make although they did it for years and years and years but I don't see mm -hmm. how we can really make any pretense of judging a sh the merits of a new play that we've right. never seen. Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. It's up. Yeah, it's. All right. Okay. So we're going to move on to. Thank you, uh, Another listener, yes. um, uh, John Mayer, who's with the theater company Synchron Verse. So I've studied it for length, uh, and uh, John said, "I wonder whether all three of you are engaged in other types of criticism besides just theater." And I wonder to what extent have your editors been open to theater reviews going far beyond the scope of just what you see on the stage and allowing you to bounce your ideas off of politics and political space. So I think it's like two different questions here. Do right. we do other kinds of criticism besides theater? And right. do we? Ha what kind of leeway do we have from editors in terms of incorporating uh, politics uh, with the current news? Hmm. Well, they're both good questions. I mean, I write about all the arts. I always have, ever since I was in college. That's one of the reasons why the Wall Street Journal hired me to review theater in the first place. I mean, not only is theater a synthesis of the arts, but it's also a social art form, one that exists in the world and partakes of and comments on what happens there. For that reason, my editors take it for granted that I'll relate what I write to the world around me, and they very specifically expect me to relate theater to the larger world of art of ideas. I mean, it wouldn't have made sense for me to review a straight white men or head over heels without, mm -hmm. without pointing out the ways in which both of those shows reflect the contemporary discourse about progressive identity politics. On the other hand, the editors do not expect me to use the journal's drama column as an extension of the editorial page, and I don't have any interest in doing that either. As a very general rule, I'm an art for art's sake critic. When a play is political or historical in its essence, in its bones, then obviously it's part of my job to evaluate it from that point of view which includes evaluating its factual basis and its truth claims. I mean, I'd never write about Inherit the Wind without making a point of explaining how it both fictionalizes and distorts the actual story of the Scopes trial. But it's important to remember that most plays are not political or historical in their essence, and to write about them as if they were seems to me to misunderstand what theater and art more generally are about. Uh, but do you, do you uh, the other question, Terry? You you do you review music? Not regularly, but I did it for the entire first part of my career. And I mean, I have a second column in the journal called Sightings, where I write about the other arts in in rotation. So in the course of a year, you know, I may write about art exhibits, uh, classical composers. I mean, just 
anything that strikes me as of particular interest. And I've always, I've just always been this way. I've always wanted to write about all of the arts. They all interest me. I think all of the arts in some underlying sense are trying to do the same thing. And uh, it also keeps me alive because when you have a really bad run of shows on Broadway and you start to think you'd rather slit your wrists than go to another one, well, you can think about something else, write about something else. It's an essential tool for me in keeping fresh. Hmm. Do you, do you review anything well, besides uh, theater? Yeah, actually, I started as a uh, rock critic. Interesting. Yes, I was a uh, <laughs> rock critic for many, many years. Uh, and I've written about also... <laughs> Uh, I've written also about uh, film and television. Film, not so much. Television, quite a bit. Uh, I wish I could do book, write more about books, but mm. that hasn't really... Uh, and of course, those who follow me on Twitter know that I'm obsessed with skiing. And I do uh, quite a bit of uh, writing about skiing. <laughs> I think about skiing all the time. Mm. All the time that I'm not at the theater, I think about skiing. Do you think about the sports the same way that you think about the arts? Yes, actually, I do. Uh, I, I, the sports section is the first section I read in the, in the paper. And I, I get the, the paper version of the paper. And I, my first section that I read every day is the sports section. Uh, and which it, it's really freakish that I know like the rankings of all the NFL teams, even though I really do not know the rules of football. But I read about it kind of obsessively. I cannot explain that. Mm. Uh, but yes, uh, I, I, I love reading... Uh, about sports, I'm very interested in the people who try to push the envelope of what sports writing is. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very interesting field right now, actually. It's been kind of changing over the past few years. Mm. Uh, and there's, I mean, pretty much everything you have, s every time you have someone um, with extraordinary skills, like that interests me, the way they use their skills and, and, and how we perceive what they do. Um, and of course, I mean, there's such obvious correlation between uh, dancing and, and, and athleticism. I mean, it's just not very far. So No, that's exactly right. Back in the old days when I wrote a lot about ballet and modern dance, it, it suddenly hit me. I remember this. I've never been interested in sports, and suddenly I realized that there was clearly a direct relationship between the way that I was interested in the home team, New York City Ballet, mm -hmm. and the way that, that other people responded to the Yankees or, or, or some sports team like that. I mean, I just understood that, that this was occupying a similar space in my sensibility. Oh, very uh, much so, yeah, yeah. Um, I was just going to say, I, I'm, a, I'm a theater guy through and through, have never really had an interest in reviewing other forms. I love going to other forms, but writing about theater has basically been you know the entirety of my critical journey um, but as to the question about politics it's an interesting one Terry you know I've had people we've had I've had discussions with people who say that every play is political right that, that at some level uh, the, the the space is always you know filled with politics whether it's the dynamics within a family or you know or it is about you know um, you know international affairs <coughs> directly but I do feel as if you know in this moment, the uh, I have never felt uh, as strongly an urge to be able to talk about what life is like today uh, in my in in reviews and doing it in as you know in in as non what's the mm. word uh, you know partisan a way I'm not looking to advance candidates or you know or or or, or particular uh, 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 parties but. 
I do feel that we have the authority and the responsibility to make it plain to readers that we have political consciences. And I think that that's uh, reflected sometimes in the work we see and how we respond to it, and sometimes it's just our own sort of need to be a human being without, uh, without being the editorial page. Uh, you know, I know actually, Terry, you work for the editorial page, which is an interesting you yeah, know, sort the, of like the critics, the critics of the journal actually report to the editorial page. It's a different institutional structure, indeed. But do you, but do you both um, do you both feel uh, you know is is a crusade a reasonable thing for a uh, theater critic to go on? What kind of crusade? Well, a political crusade. If you're finding that the uh, that uh, you're, you're you have a, a violent reaction to what's happening uh, on the border, say. Or well, my, my my crusade would be to get butts into seats. Like to my, crusade, my my crusade would be for the art form in general and encouraging people. That I would say yes, it's kind of like a goal. But more specifically, I wouldn't say I have a crusade to push a particular political mm -hmm. agenda. Although I mean, it's very clear what my views are. Well, <laughs> I just saw the uh, the jungle this weekend uh, at St. Anne's Warehouse, which is set in the uh, refugee camp in Calais, and clearly, you know, the the the, the whole thrust. Is uh, is political of that piece, and I think you know uh, that you know putting an, a human face on refugees is a noble endeavor if it's done in an, in a fashion that's absorbing and you know theatrically uh, viable, uh, and that in a sense is a is a is an act of politics to endorse a piece like that. Sure, mm -hmm. but then I mean I'm also thinking of Lynn Nottage's Sweat, a play that is right. a play. Mm. And that is, I mean, it's, it's in one sense, it is political in its bones, but in another sense, it's not. It's a play about human interaction. Sure. And those it's are the, and though that's where they really work yeah. when they're mm -hmm. not just. If I make, you know, if I make quote somebody who is very politically incorrect, Rudyard Kipling, whom I may <laughs> be getting wrong here, this is from memory, but I think it was, there are eight and 20 ways of constructing tribal way, lays, and each <laughs> and every one of them is right. Mm. I mean, the, the fact that, that we write about theater in different ways with different priorities that you peter might feel a, an obligation to to crusade about something like this and i might say no my crusade is to keep people from dragging gratuitous uh, applause line jokes about trump into shows uh, you know i mean it's it's oh, that drives me nuts. Right. It's valuable that there are all these different ways of going at it. It's actually important, I think. Well, the, show that, the shows that really interest me are the show where on paper I should be totally on board. And I see them and I find them so bad. Especially right now, there's a whole rush of shows that are... I'm trying not to use politically correct, but like there's this, it's actually kind of good expression. Yeah, we, we have a, a whole bunch of shows right now that are very, very uh, f feminist and very aware of intersectional politics. And I see them and they're garbage. They're so bad. And I find myself thinking, careful what you wish for. This is what we wanted. Mm -hmm. This play is terrible because we're losing sight of the aesthetic pleasure and the craft, both of which are missing from these shows. And I've seen a lot of them this fall, actually. Mm -hmm. Shows that really, on paper, you would think, oh my God, Elizabeth, this was written for you. And I go and I'm just appalled by the naivete and the lack of effort that these playwrights put into their work. And it's very frustrating. 
just saying that I'm going to, okay, I just saw a, sh a, a little, it's a little show, but it's called The Making of King Kong. So King Kong is really bad juju this fall because The Making of King Kong is about the making of the 1933 movie. It's a terrible play. The play saying, oh my God, it's a racist and sexist movie. Duh. Okay. All right. And, and what? It is, it's just incredibly lazy and this perfunctory effort to like, push this obvious like red button um well it is so frustrating well to see that's that. another there's a whole other subject uh, of, of discussion which is the you know this sort of knee-jerk preaching to the choir notion oh of, of what the you know political theater is and that's the least interesting kind of yeah. right you know, it's, it's elizabeth i think you used the magic words when you spoke of effort and laziness too many people think that being on what they take to be the right side gives them a pass not to do the work of art to completely embody ideas in an artistic experience in a human drama and when you do that uh, you, you're getting what i call the theater of concurrence hmm. where you're taking for granted that everybody in the room agrees with you and the result is fine if everybody in the room agrees with you but uh it's not art yeah, but I always wonder how many times can you go to things that you just agree with? I mean, it. I, I don't sure, understand I mean, the. Yeah. It it becomes you know it becomes really uh, tedious, to, you know. I think to have everybody always you know uh, confirming your biases or your you know uh, you know the things that don't challenge you, just becomes so boring. I'm not saying everything you know. I'm, I don't want to see you know neo Nazi the musical. You know, I mean, but I, I, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, I do I do think that there is something to be said for theater that that is not uh, uh, just a an, a a dive into complacency well of course that depends well, on whether or not you really like art and a lot of people <laughs> true yeah a lot this of people like this kind of show don't that's like true art. that's well, true clearly we All could right. go on for quite a while on this topic yeah john mayer got what he bargained for <laughs> yeah, right. question but, but probably it's probably time to wrap this up at least for today so why don't we move on to our all around the table discussion of some of the shows that have caught our attention uh, these past couple of weeks. Peter? I'm going to talk about, uh, uh, briefly, uh, uh, a show I revisited. It, it's in Washington. It sort of burst. It, it was it was a New York uh, hothouse flower show, Indecent, that did move to Broadway and didn't succeed there. And I saw a new production of it directed by Eric Rosen, the former artistic director of Kansas City Rep at Arena Stage. And I have to tell you that it was uh, a very satisfying uh, experience, in some ways more satisfying than what I saw in New York. Uh, maybe because there have been some, uh, there's been some tinkering. The one of the aspects of Indecent that sort of drove me crazy was the this the device of of what they called a blink in time, which uh, was a frozen moment that would. Uh, move you to another moment and it just seemed like such an artificial construct that uh, somebody will have to explain to me why it was and Paula Vogel who wrote the play maybe has a really great explanation but I they, they reduced those in this production and therefore it had a much more coherent story to tell I felt and uh, uh, it's it's obviously it's a play about the first lesbian kiss on Broadway in 1923 I think mm -hmm. it was and about you know the you know the necess the necessity of art and all that uh, but uh, it made me think also about how how uh, useful it is to revisit plays that we think we have settled ourselves on that we think we know what we think mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And my God, you know, it was like seeing, in a weird way, it's like seeing sweat in, in upstate uh, Pennsylvania, out, you know, east in western Pennsylvania a few months ago. Uh, it just landed differently. I didn't, you know, I, sometimes novelty uh, is, a, uh, is a distraction. Uh, and, and actually being familiar with the work uh, made me see it in a new light. Yeah, I always try to seek out regional productions of plays about which I had mixed or complicated feelings uh, to see if they're clarified. Mm-hmm. And we often forget, and you've just pointed it out, uh, Peter, if that's in fact what happened, shows get changed after Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, not right. in, not infrequently. Um, right, right, right. All right. Well, well, yeah, Elizabeth, so what did you, what's yours? Well, I, I saw... Um, to Kill a Mockingbird, ah, the Broadway version, because there's another. Ding, ding, ding. It's not. I mean, it's not the first time the the book has been adapted for the stage, uh, but this is a, a new version, uh, written by Aaron Sorkin, of the Social Network, The West Wing, uh, among other things, and he's completely Sorkinized the book uh, by making it illegal thriller. Uh, <laughs> You mean like, like like John Grisham? G- oh, that's of. interesting. Kind that's of. He's Grishamized. Wow. He's Grishamized the the novel. So now it's all about the trial. Uh, the the show starts with the trial, and the show keeps returning to the trial, and then there are the kind of familiar scenes from the book are kind of interspersed. So that means a lot of moving the scenery about. But it really also means that now the, 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 the show is really this, even this glorification of Atticus Finch. It's really about him. And what I really miss is the, the voice of the book. The book is about the, this man and this case, but seen through the lens of a young girl coming of age. And it's very important to me that the voice of Scout is in the story. And here the voice of Scout is completely deluded because also the narration is split among the three kids, Scout, Jim, and Dill. And I, I felt that this was the erasure of Scout. I was completely incensed oh, by that. Oh, for goodness sake. I sakes. know, I know, I know. Um, uh, it's a little too much. But <laughs> it, 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 did, it did bother me, though. It did bother me. It did bother me that it's now all about this, like, this noble savior. And, and, and the, the synchronization also involves... Um, adding scenes between Atticus Finch and Calpurnia, the the cook, and also between him and Tom Robinson's mm-hmm. The Accused, mm-hmm. which I don't actually have a big issue with. I, I see why he did that, but to me, it completely dilutes uh, the the way the novel captures a certain time and place by making it a kind of run-of-the-mill legal thriller. Mm. Have you seen it, Terry? No, I will have seen it by the time this podcast drops. But it happens that I have seen and reviewed... Other productions? What used to be the, the standard stage version of To Kill a Mockingbird. It's by a man named Christopher Serbel. Uh, it, was, it was premiered in 1991. I reviewed it uh, down at Orlando Shakespeare in Florida in about two or three years ago. It's workmanlike, but it's good. It's good and solid. It is... It, it, it keeps firmly in mind who this book is really about. It's about Scout. It's about Harper mm-hmm. Lee. I mean, it's an autobiographical novel disguised as, as something else. And uh, uh, 
it's not fancy. It's not slick. Uh, I don't know whether it would work on Broadway or not. Uh, and it's it's you know the very opposite thing from what I think you're you're telling us about Elizabeth when you say that this one is sorkinized. But I think that's consistent with the book. I I I, I disagree uh, with uh, mm. with Ms. Vincentelli on this one. I loved it, and I didn't feel it was sorkinized, and that's why I kind of liked it. I I mean I liked it a lot. I mean one of the attributes was that he didn't distill it into that kind of, you know, we weren't like, you know, uh, it, it didn't sound like New York and L.A., uh, you know, trained people, you know, uh, like sort of uh, spewing and pontificating on subjects. It really felt like it, of its place. And I also disagree about uh, Atticus. I thought Atticus went through a metamorphosis in this, that, and it was not the ennobling of Atticus mm -mm. Finch, the way it is in the movie and in the book, who is a one-dimensional uh, figure in both those. Because it's not a, because he's seen through, of course he's one-dimensional, he's seen through a little girl's eyes. Yeah, no, I get that. I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I didn't feel when I watched Gregory Peck in that movie that I was getting a human being, I was getting a saint. And this Atticus is not a saint. He's a, and I think he does understand something differently at the end of this play that he didn't understand at the beginning. Uh, that you know that he isn't that that you know that everything is not black or white, so to speak. I, did, I didn't know <gasps> that at all. And, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I also thought that the the um, I thought the one mistake that was made, interestingly, was the uh, it's it's inherent in both the book and in the play and in the movie. You know, it's. In, in 2018, it feels a little easy to blame the ills of the world on poor white people. Uh, you know, I mean, the idea that the own, that, that, that uh, it's a drunk, you know, uh, 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 a guy who lives by the dump, uh, who, who uh, you know, abuses his daughter, who is, you know, and who, who causes this, you know, the, the death of this black man. I mean, it just feels like it's a little bit classist, you know, that all the problems uh, 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 emanate from... The, the, from that group of people, there, there is an, uh, the, the prosecutor played by Stark Sands is um, somewhat mitigates that because he is also uh, spewing sort of uh, he's he's race baiting throughout the trial, but to have the but jury box empty is a mistake because we need to see that this is a cross section of the community that is going to be condemning essentially this black man to death, and we need to understand it's not just you know. The, this this poor white trash thing. That, right, that but you can't it. deny you can't deny that in mid thirties Alabama, these people existed oh, and no, did I'm what they. they I mean, I just that, I just said that, but to contextualize it, it's not just that. I mean, it's so the, the book and the and the uh, does tend to say you know, it, there's that line about you know black people look. Uh, I mean, they you know that the. Um, the farmers look down on the black people, the townspeople look down on the farmers, and the educated look down on, as if the educated are the best mm, people alive. And I just think that, you know, I mean, we, we the, the moral sort of distinctions are very, very, uh, are drawn very, very distinctly in the, in the novel that I think uh, uh, in 2018, we're, I think we're smarter than that. It's, it's interesting because I thought actually the novel was pretty, was go is good about pointing out that the entire town is complicit. The I'm, entire I town. I do th agree with that. I'm saying that I think in the play, oh, it, in the needs, play right. it needs a little more of that, too. I, I would agree with that. But I, I was really, really bummed out by the way the... Uh, I don't actually... I, I think a lot of people object to the the fact that it so much of it is narrated by, by the three kids who actually are 
they're kind of adults in the play. I mean, we have to clarify that the, the three kids are played by adult actors who the characters are reminiscing, but then also they are playing kids when mm -hmm. they have to be of that age. Right. And actually, I d that didn't bother me. I thought it was a theatrical device that worked for me. I'm not... Right. And they're also not kidifying their performances. Right. They're, right. You know, they're There's a, a little very, bit, but, very, very but enough, but it, it didn't bother me. But what bothered me was the delusion of, of Scout's voice, which is key to the novel. And now, for, for me, it really is this kind of white savior. And I also... I don't agree that it's uh, that we showed an evolution in Atticus. Like it's just Sorkin puts a puts a very like it, it. Oh, I'm gonna put on a little wart on you to humanize you. Oh God, you know that's just a not enough. He is the savior from beginning to end. He is this heroic figure from beginning to end. That's it, it just showing a l tiny little flaws or evolution in thinking. It doesn't really change the bottom line of what he represents in the show and in the story. Well, I think that our disagreement is going to spur another flood of sales to a show that <laughs> well, it's certainly it's is certainly selling oh, like hotcakes. I know. Cakes. Yeah, it is right. certainly so, piqued so I think my interest. Actually helped them. I, I tell you, you know, uh, what you just said, Elizabeth, uh, there was a very good story in the New York Times, a feature about how the, the legal wrangles that led to the creation of the script. Every change that Sorkin wanted to make uh, in the novel had to be negotiated with the estate. Uh, and I tell you what, that's no way to adapt anything if you have to work like that. That is, that's a recipe for paralysis. It's a recipe for, for, well, for confusion of aims. That's, that's a whole, yeah. yeah that, I mean, that's also the whole, touches on the whole issue of what's going on with the Harper Lee estate, which has been very fraught for a few years because of the person who's now leading it um, it's it's a complicated, it's a very complicated situation. So I'm, I'm I don't feel like I know enough uh, about that. Okay, so Terry, what? Uh, oh, well, I hate what to caught admit your it. attention. Yeah. It, the truth is that I haven't been to the theater since our last taping. I've been busy looking after Mrs. T, who just spent two and a half weeks in the hospital in Connecticut, Ugh, and so I'm about sorry. to make up for lost time by seeing five shows in a row, starting with To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that I haven't had theater on my mind. Um, I just read and wrote about a really good new book by Lawrence Maslin called From Broadway to Main Street, How Show Tunes Enchanted America. It's a history of how Americans who didn't live anywhere near New York discovered Broadway musicals and how they developed their idea of Broadway. I'm bringing this up because of something that relates to what we were talking about in the first segment of the podcast. Just the other night, Mrs. T and I watched an old movie based on a play. It was the 1933 pre-code screen version of When Ladies Meet, a play by Rachel Crothers, uh, not widely known anymore, but she was the first, the most successful American woman playwright prior to Lillian Hellman. She's one of my critical causes. She's a playwright of real quality, way overdue for a revival. Now, back in the 30s, it was common for successful plays to be made into Hollywood movies. And some of them, like this one, were pretty faithful, at least in spirit, to the plays on which they were based. That was true well into the 70s and even beyond. I'll give you a better known example. Sam Wood's 1940 film of Our Town is in most ways extremely faithful to Thornton Wilder's play. 
and it also preserves the performances of several members of the original Broadway cast of Our Town, including Martha Scott and Frank Craven, who created the roles of Emily and the stage manager. Now, that makes it a historical document, but also we need to remember that movies like that created an image of Broadway in the minds of the average American, and that image helped to make Broadway important outside New York and to create, in at least some Americans, an appetite for live theater. Whenever these movies were promoted, the fact that they were Broadway hits, that they won the Pulitzer Prize, this was part of what Hollywood promoted. They were prestige items. And this doesn't happen anymore. I mean, it's now quite unusual for contemporary plays to be turned into movies. It's the reverse now. Movies are turned into plays. Exactly right. So I wonder whether great performances in National Theater Live are now starting to take up the slack and introduce Mm. the American people to the joys of live theater. I I hope so. I would like for this to be so. But Mm. honestly, I doubt it. I mean, I don't think that they could possibly have anything remotely close to the impact of what it was like for somebody like, you know, somebody like me who grew up in a small town in the Midwest, if I had been alive in the 30s or 40s. I could have gone to the theater and seen uh, Our Town, the movie of Our Town, the movie of Abe Lincoln in Illinois, uh, the movie of The Man Who Came to Dinner into the 70s, the movie of The Odd Couple, uh, films that told me that there was something that happened in theaters in New York that was very, very special, something that maybe I might want to do. And I, I just don't see that video into theater performances are going to have that Mm. kind of culture effect and so it gave me Mm. a very nostalgic feeling and in some ways a very sad feeling uh, Mm. watching when ladies meet the other night because that was a different time well and we 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 wish you of course terry the you know we we think about you and mrs t all the time so the fact that you're you're going through these ongoing issues uh is of of deep concern to us, and uh, we send our, our love. Well, I thank you. I'm, I'm going to get her to the theater a couple of times this week with a little bit of luck. Uh, she's going to go see the revival of Lynn Nottage's uh, Fabulation and uh, oh, yeah. mm. at the Irish Rep of Child's Christmas in Wales. So cross your fingers. We're hoping for the best. Lovely. Well, uh, that's it for us for this episode. So uh, we're going to say toodaloo for now. I'm Peter Marks. I'm Terry Teachout. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer is the heroic Kirby Pate. <laughs> you can follow us at Twitter on th- at Three on the Isle and write to us at threeontheisle at gmail.com. Spell it out, T-H-R-E-E. And ask more great questions like John and Todd. Yes, please uh, do. Make sure you leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. And join us on January 12th at 1.45 at the Hilton Midtown for a live podcast on Broad- at BroadwayCon. BroadwayCon, man, it's going to be, you know what? I think we're against like three or four panels and we're going to wipe them out. <laughs> Watch out, Andrew Reynolds. <laughs> he's already called his, you know what? Andrew Reynolds just called his judge. He's like, oh my God, you put me against me on the aisle. I am... He's so ter- yeah, screwed. he's terrified. <laughs> oh my god. All right. Well, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time at Broadway Con. <laughs>